0: All right, well, it's good to be back, Lily and I, and our grandson Nathan had been on vacation visiting our family out in Hawaii, John, Catherine, and Ayana, and we haven't been out there uh, since 2019, and so it was a real good trip, and uh, good to be back, unlike Dave, who has been out for a planned vacation and then catching a cold, still coughing as he was trying to sing that big song tonight. Um, And other events going on, a planned memorial service for Dave. He said today that it's been, I think, five weeks since he's been with us, and maybe four weeks, but good to get the church back together. We know that uh, summer's coming and people will be, in and out and on vacation, we're grateful for those who are with us, grateful for those who are listening via the radio, those who are watching uh, online, whether it's through a social media page or through our church's website, I am amazed at the traction, the numbers that they say we have watching us, and it's amazing to me that God can use us in such a way. Well, each month I try to do a prophecy update, and I, I've done this for a few years, got away from it for a couple of years, and just got into just teaching the Gospel of Matthew and doing a few other books, but it seems that with so many things going on in the world, several years ago I began to do once a month on the third Wednesday as my goal to do a prophecy update, to look at the Word of God and to talk a little bit about what's going on in the world today. And uh, I have always done a prophecy update with teaching through a passage of Scripture. And tonight we're going to be looking at a sermon that I titled, That Coming Day, from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 12, I decided at the beginning of the year we began in 1st Thessalonians chapter 4 in beginning in verse 13 because Paul in the latter section of 1st Thessalonians and pretty much in all of 2nd Thessalonians which is not that long only 3 chapters long he talks about the second coming of Jesus Christ he talks about the rapture of the church he talks about end time events and so I think this is a perfect section of scripture to be looking at while talking about current events going on in our world. And in our last month's prophecy update, we began our journey here in the second epistle to the church of Thessalonica. And we learned about the believers of Thessalonica, that they had a growing faith and they were abounding in love toward one another. They were enduring persecutions and tribulations, which Paul commended them for. And he talks about their patience and their endurance in 2 Thessalonians 1.4. He says, so we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. So they were an enduring church. They were going through a very difficult time in this season of life and of ministry. And the believers of Thessalonica were able to patiently endure as they look forward to the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but also look forward to co- the coming of God's righteous judgment upon this earth. For God, has judged the nations because of their ungodly ways, their deeds throughout the history of the earth. God has often brought judgment upon particular nations or even at one point with the flood, the whole world. But he is or will judge the nations in that coming day. Speaking about the coming of Jesus Christ when he comes to deal with sin, to judge those who have not believed in him. And concerning that coming day, Paul teaches us here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 6 through 12 tonight. Again, I titled this, That Coming Day. And let's go ahead and ask God to bless the teaching of his word. So, Father, thank you for your word that you've given us. And we pray, Lord, that our hearts would be open to receive from you this evening. But also, Lord, that uh, we would be a people prepared for whatever may come in this world. Lord, that we would be looking to you as our blessed hope and not to man. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, looking to the Lord, we begin in verses 6 and 7, but just the beginning of verse 7, where God will repay and God will also give rest. First, he will repay, he says, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. Paul mentions the righteous judgments of God in verse 5, as we closed out last week, which speaks about the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. So the church in Thessalonica, they had already been suffering. We've already mentioned their tribulations, their persecutions. And God's righteous judgment mentioned in verse 5 and then mentioned again that he will judge in righteousness, verse 6, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulations those who trouble you. I want us to see here first and foremost that one of the attributes of the Lord, the characteristic of God, is that God is righteous. And you look to Webster, who defines righteousness it, with two words, virtuous and devout. But Webster's definition is only referring to humans, not to the Godhead. Dikaios is the Greek word for righteousness here. It means to be equitable, equitable or fair, and it speaks of a person's character or the act that they might do. It speaks of innocence, of holiness. It speaks of being righteous or judged or just. And also one of the Greek uh, lexicons or dictionaries that I was looking at today, it can even stand for someone's name. Uh, You know, he is righteous. I smiled because out in Hawaii, someone called me uncle. And if you're a Hawaiian, you know that every older man or woman are all uncles and aunts. And so they may not be your uncle or aunt, but you are uncle. I'd never been called uncle by anybody other than my nieces or nephews before. And uh, there was quite a little happening there because this guy looked like he was off his rocker looking at me, calling me an uncle, of course. Um, But to say, dikaios, that he is righteous, can actually refer to a position, a name. God is righteous. Righteousness is a distinct attribute of God. And it can be seen in two ways. First, his righteousness is absolute. God is righteous. And we don't have to say sometimes he's righteous and other times he may be unrighteous. God is righteous. Psalm 11, verse 7 says, The Lord is righteous. It's just a statement. Or Daniel 9:7, "O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, shame of faith, as it is this day. So we as humans might be virtuous, we might be devout, we may do righteous things, but one of the characteristics, the attributes of God is, God is righteous. He is dikaios. And he will judge in righteousness and he will do a righteous thing by repaying those who bring trouble and tribulation upon the Lord's church. But secondly, his righteousness is relative in the sense of how it relates to his creation, how it relates to us, how it impacts us. In Psalm 119, 137 and 38, it says, "Righteousness, Righteous are you, O Lord. Upright are your judgments. Your testimonies which you have commanded are righteous and very faithful. Now, Paul preached to the crowd at Mars Hill about God's coming day of judgment. And in that, talking about that coming day, Paul said this, to the people of Athens. He said, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because He has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man, referring to Jesus Christ, whom He has ordained. He has given assurance of this by raising Him from the dead. And So we know that he who will judge this world in righteousness by the man, the only one who has risen from the grave and has remained alive. Uh, there has been recorded resurrections in the Bible, but only one lives forevermore, and that is Jesus Christ. So though the believers in Thessalonica were under persecutions and tribulations, Paul promises them that God would repay those troubles, those who troubled the children of God, his church, God would repay with tribulation. Ultimately, God's judgment will be revealed during that coming day of the Lord. And I have said this before, but when we speak about the day of the Lord, we In that reference, we speak about all the end time events that the Bible prophesies about. It encompasses the tribulation of the church. It encompasses the thousand year reign of the Lord on the earth. It encompasses the Bema judgment, the great white throne judgment. And so from our perspective, that day is, as the Bible says, a thousand years to the Lord is, is a day in a thousand years. For us, it says a thousand years. It's a long time. But for the Lord, it's speaking about God bringing judgment upon this earth during a period of time, but it is referred to as the day of the Lord. So those who troubled the church will be judged in righteousness with tribulation. But for those who have been troubled within the church, they will find rest, as the beginning of verse 7 says, to give you who are troubled rest with us. Now Paul is referring to the with us, his missionary team, Uh, the rest of the church had come before them, the apostles of the church of Christ, a number of things, uh, people could be included in that, but those who have been troubled By the world, within the Lord's church, they will find rest in that coming day. The world's going to find tribulation. The church will find rest in Christ. So the day of the Lord, it will be a great and dreadful and fearful day, but not for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. This is because believers will find rest in the Lord. And Paul had this hope, He explained it to the church that we will have rest with them. And so it's not a rest that some people get. You think about the cult, the Jehovah's Witness, where they talk about only the 144,000 get to be in heaven. The rest will find the rest of the Jehovah's Witness will have to be satisfied with their place here on the earth as they're building this new kingdom for God. But we are with the church. You'll find rest with us. So the same rest that the Apostle Paul, that Peter, that John, uh, that Andrew, and we could just run through the list, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, the same rest that they receive in Christ Jesus, we will find that same rest. We believe in the same Savior, the same God, and we will find that same rest for those who are persecuted. Jesus spoke about this in the Beatitudes in Matthew five, ten through 12. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you if they revile and persecute you, say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice, be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, even Jesus here in the Beatitudes, and that's the last of the eight Beatitudes, blessed are the persecuted. He equates the persecuted of the New Testament church with the prophets of the Old Testament. We're in the same class of people in the sense, as Paul would later write, There's no Jew, no Gentile, no male, no female, no rich, no poor, no slave, no free. We are all one in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So I'd mentioned this, and that's the end of our first point. I have three points in this message, but if you've heard me do a prophecy update before. At the close of a point, I'll talk about events in the world. And one of the big things that had taken place was on Sunday, where Israel celebrated 75 years as a nation uh, in the modern sense of a term. I like it that we deemed the United States, that we are a nation, uh, many states united as one nation. And you look up Israel and it's always the state of Israel like they're one state of many nations. But in 1948 on May 14th until just last Sunday on Mother's Day, they celebrated 75 years. In Isaiah 66, I read this on Mother's Day. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? Shall all the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall the nation, a nation, be born at once? For as soon as Zion was lab- in labor, she gave birth to her children. Now, I didn't put this in my notes, but I've been thinking about that ever since I began reading that verse since last Sunday, and I've read it over a couple of other times as well. That prior to 1948, the Jews were being attempted to be eliminated during. Uh, Nazi Germany's attempt to take the world. They were persecuting Israel. They were putting some 6 million Israelis to death in the death camps. And I would say that would be some great labor, some labor pains. But once all that was over, and uh, the United States and Europe and their allies were victorious over Germany and their allies, at once Israel became a a nation, and it was made official on May 14th in 1948. There is, I looked this up today, and this comes from Worldometer. It's got to be right. It's on the Internet, right? Uh, How many nations are in the world today? 195, they say. Now, I've seen the numbers anywhere from 193 to 196. And even in this list of 195 nations, their list includes the Vatican and Palestine or the Palestinians. And so um, we know that, well, the Vatican is where the Pope dwells and the Roman Catholic Church has their headquarters and it's viewed in the eyes of the world as its own nation. And then you have Palestine Or the Palestinians and the debate there and the ongoing struggle and the struggle has been great. There's been a lot of rockets going into Israel. There's been a five day peace to stop the rockets, but that's been going on from the last two weeks. If I seem a little out of the loop as far as what's happening in world events, it's because we were on vacation and to tell you the truth, I wasn't keeping up on things, um, and I, I liked it. <laughs> it was just like turn it off and uh, just shut it down. And we kept up on a few things, but uh, it was nice. I was reading the Word. I was I read a book that um, I was wanting to get to while we were gone. Reading through the New Testament and. Uh, just doing things like that, but really shutting down on information. But uh, one hundred ninety five nations in the world, Israel, a country of about nine million people. that's current. Again, it's got to be right. It comes from world o meter, um, and it's supposed to be a live update of their population growth. It's interesting. Um, probably about ten years ago. They had a population of about 8 million, so they're growing but not at excessive rate. But they continue to be such a small nation at the forefront of the world's attention. And even though they proclaimed to be a nation on May 14th in 1948... Their history dates back to when the time Abraham was called out by God to go to a country that God said, I will show you. He ended up in the land of Israel, what we know today, and that was over 4,000 years ago. Here in 2023, Israel now is ranked of the 195 nations, 29th in gross domestic product. Now, that's amazing. They have... 9 million in population. They rank 29 in gross domestic product of all the nations of the world. And they don't have a lot of natural resources, but they are world leaders in industries such as high technology, manufacturing, diamonds, uh, agricultural, tourism, and transportation. And um, when I say transportation there, it's not... In Israel, they have great rail systems and stuff like that in actually developing transportations for um, other nations throughout the world as well as themselves. Their country is comparable to the state of New Jersey, which is the fifth smallest state. It consists here in the United States, 8,723 square miles. Israel is 8,630 square miles. So why should this be important to Christians today? Why should we be concerned with the nation of Israel? First of all, because much of biblical history took place in or near the nation of Israel. If you want to know your Bible and you want to read through your Bible and they describe uh, the land, they describe the mountains, they describe the conditions. Well, we need to be familiar with the nation of Israel. In fact, um, while we were gone, I had a phone call from someone, and uh, they were asking me bass questions, because I'm a bass player, and uh, they had texted me, it was late at night, and it's like, are you still up? And it's like, of course I'm up, because it's five hours earlier over here in Hawaii, so... Give me a call. And we talked for a while. And anyways, the person I was talking to said that Hawaii was on his bucket list. But he goes before that, we would love to go to Israel and it is worth going to Israel. We heard that and Lily and I was like, hmm, a trip to Israel. Maybe that should be on our bucket list as well. We'd love to go again. But you gain an understanding, not just reading. You can go to Google Maps. It's different when you're there. I can guarantee that. Um, but we learn a lot. Just this week, I learned of on Mount Ibel, they found a, I think it was a bronze or it may being a lead plaque. It was a portion of it, but it, it was, Talking about the curses of God, remember when Israel went into the promised land, they had two mountains, one where they would read off the blessings of God, the other they would read off the curses and Joshua set up, um, set up a monument there to remind the people and they may have just found the monument that Joshua set up, which is pretty amazing. So first, we should be concerned with Israel because much of biblical history took place there or near Israel. Second, because God's plan for Israel gives us a better understanding of his plan for the world. Largely, that his redemption comes by way of his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of God. And he was Israeli. But third, Israel was where Jesus was sacrificed, gave his life upon the cross, and finally Jesus when he returns, he's not coming to Lake Villa, Illinois. He's coming to Israel to Jerusalem. In Zechariah 14:4, 4. and in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from the east to the west. So we should keep an eye upon Israel. But for us in this passage to remember, we go through tribulations, persecutions. God will repay tribulation with all unbelievers in that coming day. But for us who trust in Jesus Christ, he will give us rest. What did Jesus say? Take my yoke upon you. It is light and it has rest for your souls. So we pick up again in verse 7. Here in our second point, Jesus will take vengeance. And when Jesus is revealed in verse 7, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. And so this revealed, it's the Greek word apocalypse. We know it as an English word, but they just took it from the Greek language, from the Koine Greek, Apocalypse. Uh, It means revelation, the uncovering, the unveiling, or a disclosure, when the Lord Jesus is revealed. And here in this section... Paul, he loves to speak about, not only here in 2 Thessalonians, but also in his other epistles, he speaks about the apocalypse, he speaks about uh, the Lord's revelation, the Lord's appearing, uh, the Lord's coming, and that he is coming again. When he comes, he's going to be revealed from heaven, with his mighty angels. In Revelation 1.1, it speaks about the revelation, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants things that must shortly take place. Things that must shortly take place. When Jesus comes, he will not only come from the heavens, he's going to come with his mighty angels. But also, he will come with his saints. First, his mighty angels in Matthew twenty-five thirty-one, And the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his holy angels with him. Then he will sit on the throne of his glory. That throne, again, it's not going to be at the White House. It's not going to be here in the United States. It's going to be in the temple in Israel. So his mighty angels will carry out the righteous judgments of the Lord during that coming day. And we do read about Angels in the Old Testament, the mighty angels, strength of angels. One angel of God killed 70,000 men of Israel from Dan to Beersheba. Basically saying from the north of Israel to the south of Israel over a period of three days when David sinned against the Lord by counting, having um, his men count... The army in Israel, one angel killing seventy thousand men. We read about that in Second Samuel twenty four sixteen, also in First Corinthians twenty one, fourteen. One angel of God killed one hundred and eighty five thousand Assyrians in one night, in second Kings nineteen thirty five, second Chronicles thirty two, twenty one, both telling us about that. In one night, one angel slew 185,000 Assyrians. Many different angels mentioned in the book of Revelation having great powers over the earth and over mankind. But Jesus not only will come with his mighty angels, in First Thessalonians 3.13, we learn that he will come with his saints so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before the our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So the Lord is coming again. He's coming again in his apocalypse, his unveiling from heaven with the angels, with the saints. And he's coming in verse 8, in flaming fire to take vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ in flaming fire to take vengeance. You know, it comes upon two different groups here that is mentioned. First, the Lord is coming in flaming fire to take vengeance on those who do not know God. They don't know God. Perhaps you've heard someone ask, what about that person in South America who has never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Will God send him to hell? Well, this we can be sure of, that God is righteous and he will judge in righteousness. Why? Because we've already learned in our first point, righteousness is part of the characteristic of God. He will judge them according to their knowledge. Perhaps based on the knowledge that was given to them. But second... He's coming in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this group seems to have opportunity. They'd heard about the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they refused to obey it. This would mean at some point in their life, and this can happen to this day, there has been a witness, there has been a testimony. It may have been a John 3.16 at the end of a a field goal on a football field on national television. Maybe it's uh, currently Greg Laurie proclaiming the gospel on some news show. Or maybe it's an old clip of Billy Graham. But they've heard the gospel message, but they've refused to obey. And the Lord will bring vengeance upon those. But thankfully, those who truly seek God, His Savior Jesus Christ... They will find him in Jeremiah twenty-nine thirteen. It says, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. In Isaiah 55, 6, it says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let verse seven, let the wicked forsake his way. The unrighteous man, his thoughts, let him return to the Lord that he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. So yes, the Lord is coming. He's coming with judgment, in righteousness, in flaming fire, taking vengeance, coming with his saints, coming with the mighty angels. But for those who seek the Lord and trust in him, they will find grace. He's also coming with everlasting destruction. Verse 9 These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his power. Now the punishment, notice, Paul said everlasting destruction. How long is everlasting? Doesn't it mean it lasts forever? And yet we have sections of the church might teach that it's not an everlasting punishment, but you can, through purgatory, work your way, have a temporary judgment, finally make it to heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches. We're all going to live forever. It's the destination that we each must concern ourselves with. And this isn't just a New Testament teaching. In Daniel 12.2, Here we have both believers and unbelievers. Listen, Daniel 12, 2, of many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So some, the believers, to everlasting life, to some, the unbelievers, to shame and everlasting contempt. Matthew 25, 41, Jesus said, to those on the left hand, depart from me, curse you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, Matthew 25:46. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous to everlasting life. So the unrighteous, everlasting punishment, the righteous to everlasting life. The punishment of the wicked will be neither temporary nor will it be annihilation, but it will continue throughout eternity and they will be from the presence of the Lord. Uh, this can actually speak, that Greek word can speak of the face of the Lord. To be separated from the face of the Lord will be a, a living hell, a place of no hope, of no salvation, but also from the glory of His power. And the power of God to salvation, the Bible tells us, Paul wrote in Romans 1.16, that the power of God to salvation is for everyone who believes. But to the unbeliever, they'll be separated from that power and they will have no salvation but everlasting destruction. So as I said, we, Lily and I just uh, still dealing with a five-hour time sh- change. I've been pretty good um, until today. It's like, man... I got tired this afternoon and I came home from the church and Lily's like, I am tired. So we kind of shut off kind of the news and, uh, we turned on a couple of news stations, didn't really watch too much while we were gone, didn't listen to too many podcasts while we were gone. But, uh, it does seem that the prophetic timetable is revving up in our world. And and I was thinking about that. That coming day, I titled this passage That Coming Day, just taking it from the passage itself. But I was thinking about the day of the Lord, and as it approached, I uh, found this passage. I knew what I was looking for. It's Hebrews ten twenty-four through 25. Um, I was expecting the much more as you see the day approaching what surprised me is what it, the context of the passage which i think the church is failing at so we're going to get into a little prophecy update talking about the church right now what's going on here in the united states especially the author of hebrews in hebrews 10:24 and 25 he says let's consider one another in order to stir up love and good works not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another so much more, I read that wrong, so much the more as you see the day approaching. So as we see things revving up in our world, as they're talking about the rapid advancement of AI, as they're talking about... um, the world becoming one in unity, and there's this push for one world government. We read about that in Scripture. They're pushing for it right now, and they're talking about uh, global currency now. and Get rid of the dollar, get rid of any uh, dollar of any nation or state, but everything coming onto one global governance. Well, as we see these things approaching, what are we to be doing? Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. We're to stir up love and good works among our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not to forsake assembling together. Oh, I, I quit going to church. I still follow the Lord. I'm still a believer. But we need each other. And we need to be in church. Because... If we're not together, we can't stir up love and good works. We can't exhort one another, and we can't encourage one another as we see things revving up in our world. The author of Hebrews gives us some great tools how we can hold fast the confession of the hope without wavering, Hebrews 10.23. It is by exhorting one another in Christ, it's through stirring up love and good works, It's by not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together. So I was thinking about this since it seems like the pandemic. uh, I have to probably redo 1st and 2nd Corinthians, but on the radio in the morning, I've been going through the epistles. Now, this takes some of those teachings go all the way back to 2006. But 1st and 2nd Corinthians We were living the pandemic during that time, and I was talking to a brother yesterday that listens to the daily podcast, and he says, you're bringing back a lot of bad memories, (laughs) and maybe I need to go clean up. I try to, and I've been doing it for the later. I'm actually working on Jude right now, and I try to take out things that would time date me, but hey, if you're teaching current events in a live message, you're going to talk about things that are happening right now, but it seems that revving up has helped the decline of the church in the United States, losing their religion, this is the title of an article that was in January 22nd, 2023, so only a few months old. The title, the whole title of this article, Losing Their Religion, Why the U.S. Churches Are on the Decline, and I have three paragraphs from that article for you. Churches are closing rapidly in rapid numbers across the U.S. Researchers say as congregations dwindle across the country And a younger generation of Americans abandon Christianity altogether, even as faith continues to dominate American politics. As the U.S. adjusts to an increasingly non-religious population, thousands of churches are closing each year in the country, a figure that experts believe have accelerated since the COVID-19 pandemic. And here's a quote From the article, quoting someone, I didn't get their name, a lot of people who are weakly attached to suddenly have months of not going, they're then thinking, well, we don't really need to go. We found something else to do. Or thinking, it's hard enough dragging the kids along, then we really ought to start going again next week. And then next week turns to next week. They're not going at all. Another condition of the church, the title of this article, I have three paragraphs from this article as well. The United Methodists Lose 1,800 Churches in Split Over LGBT Stance. This one written also January 24th from Christianity Today, uh, 2023, so a newer article. So nearly 4 years ago, the United Methodist Church approved an exit plan for churches which wishing to break away from global domination over differing beliefs of sexuality, setting in motion what many believed would be a modern-day schism like a, just a breaking apart of the Methodist Church. But here's what's happened. Although some have broken away, 1800 churches the number at this point of the writing of this article, 1831, not many in comparison to the 30,000 Methodist churches nationwide. It's just 6.1% of the United Methodist Church who took stance on biblical principles against LGBT, and I'll add, LGBTQ, I think this one's mine. It's a paragraph, but I put it in here wrong. That the LGBTQ plus agenda will continue to impact churches in the U.S. as some will go along with these non-biblical apostasies, while others determined to stand fast with God's word concerning these matters. It's going to be a battle in our nation especially with what's happening in our public schools, in the government-run schools, where they are stripping away not only God out of our schools, but teaching sexuality, sensuality, uh, trying to rev things up at a younger younger age for our kids that is going to totally mess them up. And I fear what our future generations might have to deal with because of these things. Another article, this one from January 9th, all from January um, 2023. This one, The Christian Century. The title of the article, The Church Attendance Declines as Pandemic Enters Year Three. This one was interesting to me because I found it somewhere else. And uh, I'm pretty sure this is the article I found somewhere else in a different article, and it's like, hey, that's the same article I just read and put in my notes, and they didn't give credit to the person who wrote it. All they said was staff, unless that person was on their staff too, maybe. But the median congregation in the United States, this is something that we need to pay attention to because we're a small church. And in reality, in the United States, the number of churches we have throughout the United States we see the larger churches, we think all churches must be really big, but the median average size of the congregation in the year 2000 was 137 people. So you do have churches. Uh, when we were at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mason, 92 to 94, they figured they had some 30,000 members at that church. But here we've dropped from 137 people In 2000 to 65, as of 2020, and now since the pandemic, things are even going and faring worse. The Americans who do attend services often go to large congregation, leaving many smaller local churches, houses of worship in difficult straits. Most congregations have seen attendance decline by a quarter during the pandemic. And this is from uh, Scott Thuma, a director of Hartford Institute of Religion Research. That decline has hit smaller churches particularly hard. Most churches have seen fewer than 100 people. If 25 are missing from a church, that has a huge impact. Everything has to be hyper-intentional now. The focus should be how can we become a better church rather than... How do we recreate what we used to have? And, you know, we talk about pandemic and stuff and talk with other pastors, other churches. And one of the recurring things that I have said is that we still have people who used to attend our church before pandemic that have never returned. We may see them online. We may not. But they're just not going. I hope they're going somewhere, but I know they're not going here. Jesus told of wars and rumors of wars, of earthquakes, of famines, of troubles, of pestilence. And in Mark thirteen eight, he says, these are the beginning of sorrows. But that, I don't believe, is any longer true. We have seen an increase of these things over the last 100 years or more. And things are changing so quickly in our world. We see the nearness of our Lord coming. And Paul talks about that to close us out in verses 10 through 12. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints, to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. So that coming day for the believers will be a day of great deliverance. It will be a day of... Glory, to be admired among the saints. We will be worshiping Jesus with our eyes, seeing his magnitude, his glory, his beauty. The day of the Lord, as I said, it speaks about the tribulation, the millennial reign of Christ to at least 1,007 years. But that day, well, the Lord will come. And we will see his glory. John 1710, Jesus prayed about this, praying to the Father before he went to the cross, saying, "All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, that the Lord is glorified in us." And he was specifically there talking about the twelve, but he does pray about us in that prayer in John 17. And in Matthew 5:16 he says, "So let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven." And in that day, that coming day as believers, we will see our Lord will never get enough of our Lord. Some of the worship tunes in Revelation 5 alone where they are crying out the four living creatures, the 24 elders, Crying out, you are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. Revelation 5, 8 through 10. Also... Hearing the voices of many angels, John says, of the living creatures, of the elders, of numbers that were ten thousands times ten thousands, Revelation five twelve, saying, "Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing, and every creature in the heaven, and on the earth and under the earth." In Revelation five thirteen and fourteen, saying, "Blessed." Blessing and honor and glory and power to him who sits on the throne to the Lamb forever and ever. And the the four creatures saying amen, the 24 elders falling down and worshiping him who lives forever and ever. When he comes again, he will be admired among those who believe because our testimony among you was believed, Paul said. But also in verse 11 and 12, as we close out this chapter, therefore we also pray always for you that God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all His the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith and with power that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. We get a glimpse here of Paul's prayer life of Silas and Timothy. He says, we pray. This is what we are praying for you guys in the church in Thessalonica. Three specific things. First, that God would count them worthy of their calling. Second, that God would fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness, the work of faith with power in their lives. And third, he finally prayed that the name of the Lord Jesus might be glorified in them and you in him. That Jesus Christ would be glorified. This should be our prayer, that Christ Jesus would be glorified. And he closes by saying, according to the grace of our God, our Lord Jesus Christ, that it's all because of God's grace. Paul understood these things. So I'd said things are revving up, and we'll close with just a few more things. I was thinking about this as I heard yesterday listening to David Fierazzo and Stand Up for the Truth and John Haller, his guest, on that show. And John had mentioned the year 2030, and he said, pay attention to that date because there's another 2030 target date stressed. And, uh, This is something that's been stressed, the eight things of the Great Reset. I'll just remind you what they're wanting our world to be in just seven years. Number one, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. Number two, the U.S. population won't be the world's leading superpower. Do you think that what's happening on our southern border right now might be playing into that. Number three, you won't die waiting for an organ donor. They'll just simply make organs, 3D printing. Number four, you'll eat much less meat. Meat will be an occasional treat, not a staple, for the good of the environment and our health. I just read an article last week of a a guy who was a vegan, a vegetarian, and athletic, and he's now eating red meat and saying, I'm feeling so much better now. So they're saying it's for your health, but I tell you, guys need red meat. And girls like it as well, I believe. Just our kids growing up, man, they need, they don't need crickets to eat. They need steak, potatoes. Number five, a billion people to be displaced by climate change. So this is a plan, I heard it a couple of years ago, that they, they speaking of this World Economic Forum, those who want to have this one world government, that a half a billion people would move into Europe and a half a billion into the uh, North America, which includes what? Canada and the U.S., so a half a billion, we don't even have a half a billion in population, and they want that many more to come into our country. And the gates are wide open, even though we have politicians that keep insisting that it's closed. But don't worry, the new, governor, or new uh, mayor of Chicago says all are welcome, so it's all going to be good. Just head to Chicago. Number six, polluters will have to pay to emit carbon dioxide. They just passed a new emissions rule uh, regarding natural gas and even uh, carbon dioxide emissions. So, hey, we, I learned this back in school a long time ago. We breathe in oxygen, we breathe out carbon dioxide. So they're going to be charging you for your breaths pretty soon. You want to breathe in oxygen? You're going to have to pay to breathe it out. I don't know how long we can hold our breaths, but number seven, preparing to go to Mars. Scientists will work out how to keep you healthy in space. And number eight, Western values will be been put to the test and come to a breaking point. The checks and balances that underpin our democracies must not be forgotten, and we are being pushed to the breaking point right now. So Davos met again in January 17th, this article they met in Switzerland. Now they want us, this group of elitists, they're not government elected officials. Some government elected officials go there. Trevaux was one who is a client of that. Um, Some go there, but they haven't been elected. They've been meeting for a long time, this is the 53rd annual meeting. Now, they want people like you and me to eat bugs instead of beef, to walk, bike, or drive electric vehicles instead of our gasoline-powered vehicles. They want to return to the dark ages by eliminating reliable forms of energy. And yet, when they went to the meeting January seventeenth, twenty 2023, um, let's see, I'm catching up with my notes here. Most of them flew private jets to go to the meeting. Some of them only flying 60 miles to get there. I don't have time. A whole hour? I'll just take a plane ride over it. So they're trying to change the world. It seems to be heading that direction. Even Elon Musk, who's been a somewhat of a champion of late for free speech, he said the world economic forum is increasingly becoming an unelected world government that the people never ask for and don't want. So does Israel having the 75th modern day anniversary mean anything of that coming day? Is it nearing the time of Christ? Does the decline in church here in the U.S. and other countries speak about the falling away that must happen when the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition? 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4, we'll look at that next month. Does the World Economic Forum helping to usher in the last days by the things that they are doing? I don't think they're hurting it. I think they're preparing all the world for that coming day. They're preparing for one thing. God has something entirely different in store for this world. Therefore, we need to, Hebrews 10, and 25, consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another so much the more as you see the day approaching. And Father, we thank you for your word and we look forward, Lord, to your coming. Until that day, let us be the church that strive to stir up love and good works, to exhort one another and to be the church in these last days. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Pray that God will bless you and keep you, that his face would always shine upon you and give you peace. God bless.